Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemong Podcast. We're coming at you from Rillo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's episode, we continue our discussion with Dr. Osmondson, talking about the importance and the role of radiation therapy in in our cancer patients. And so specifically in today's episode, we'll focus a little bit more on how our radiation oncology is super critical to the treatment that we deliver in patients with lung cancer. Yeah, radiation therapy really is a staple in, in thoracic oncology. And I think we're really lucky to have Dr. Osmondson who one of his specialties is thoracic oncologic radiation. Yeah, I think this is going to be great. And, you know, if you haven't listened to the part one of this series, I highly recommend it. This really just a continuation of that awesome interview that we had. And, you know, I came out of this learning just so much more like I did last week. I 100% agree. So let's not keep our listeners waiting. Let's roll to the show. All right. So uh, what, what I want to do is start us off with a, with a case presentation, and then we're going to ask Dr. Osmondson questions about the basics of radiation oncology and then build up to a couple of questions about specifically thoracic radiation while we're in this lung cancer series. So let's say we have a 65-year-old male who has a past medical history of tobacco use disorder and hypertension. And in our previous episodes, we talked about what we do when we see lung nodules. And he had a growing lung nodule over the past six months that went from two centimeters to 2.5 centimeters. And in that meantime, they were trying to, his primary care provider was trying to get him into pulmonary. He saw pulmonary, they got a PET CT scan, and it just showed that he had localized disease. And as we talked about before, pulmonary ended up doing an EBUS with biopsy. And that ultimately got him to a diagnosis of lung adenocarcinoma that had a 2.5 centimeter tumor and no lymph node involvement when they did mediastinal staging with their EBUS. So we kind of have a a localized lung cancer in this case. One of the questions I had in general about radiation oncology, we've talked before that you want to have a total dose of radiation, which is your total gray amount, and then you fractionate that or split it up into smaller doses that you give typically on a daily basis. We hear the terms hypofractionated radiation and hyperfractionated radiation. Can you comment on what those terms mean? Yeah, absolutely. So first, I'll just sort of say that the use of fractionation has been around for a long time for a variety of reasons. One, it has been shown that it's more tolerable. So because of limitations of prior technology, we couldn't just treat the whole chest with 60 gray and and three fractions. And by splitting it up, it allows you know, the DNA damage and the damage to the normal tissues and the tumor tissues to occur, but the normal tissues are able to repair themselves, whereas the tumor tissues aren't. And that repeat over and over again. It also allows for the redistribution of cells in the cell cycle. It also allows for reoxygenation of hypoxic tumor areas. So those are some of the reasons why we would want to do fractionated radiotherapy. With respect to the terminology hypofractionated and hyperfractionated, standard fractionation has typically been 1.8 to 2 gray per fraction. And that's sort of just initially the way that most radiation was given. Hyperfractionation 
is typically referring to multiple doses per day, often less than two gray. So an example of that would be, you know, the 45 gray BID regimen that we give as twice a day regimen we give in small cell lung cancer. Okay. We get 1.5 gray twice a day. And then hypofractionation has to do with doses typically greater than the standard two gray per fraction. It's often thought to be greater than 2.5 or three gray. So often we're talking about four or five gray per fraction. And you can often think of SBRT as sort of a extreme case of hypofractionation for radiation therapy. And so, you know, what we've found in the field is that hyperfractionation, hypofractionation, and very high dose fractionation actually have unique radiobiological properties and can affect tumors and, um, you know, cells within the tumor in, in, in unique ways. And we're just beginning to learn a little bit more about that and exploit that. So it's, it's, um, there's, a, there's still a lot to learn. Awesome. Yeah, th- that's fascinating. Cause I, cause I always saw that, you know, see, see these terms and it's good to know, you know, that when you look this up and it's, and we're going to do an episode in the future on this of, of the radio biology that's going on here, because it's fascinating of, of how this radiation therapy is actually working. And, you know, that's definitely something we're going to talk about uh, in a later episode, but you know, that was an awesome explanation. Cause I've always, always wondered that. So Dr. Osmondson, in in the case that we had referenced earlier, we have this gentleman with a 2.5 centimeter adenocarcinoma of the lung, and you know, in in a in a patient like him, how do you go about thinking about planning your radiation? Sure, we would simulate the patient supine with arms above the head, and um, we would use some sort of motion management technique, either use abdominal compression to limit how much the tumor moves during the 4D CT scan, or alternatively, we could use breath hold or respiratory gating when we treat. That's turn the beam on and off only during specific phases. Once we get the C, the, the simulation uh, CT scan, we I contour the tumor in the computer planning software, and I contour it throughout all the respiratory phases. So we sort of know this envelope of motion uh, for this tumor. We expand that to a, to a given margin based on the uncertainty of our daily setup. And depending upon your institution's level of precision um, or your imaging uh, techniques that you use when you set the patient up, you may expand it anywhere from five millimeters to seven millimeters. And then we, we work on our radiation treatment plan. Stereotactic ablative radiotherapy is given in anywhere from three to five total treatments. The limitation of five total treatments is somewhat of an arbitrary one, and it's an arbitrary one that's uh, ironically imposed by um, the uh, insurance industry in the United States. Uh, they will not pay for anything more than five five treatments. Instead, they, they would they would classify it as something else. But um, that's that's for a different talk, uh, another another set of headaches. But you know, depending upon where the tumor is, if it's bordering a, a critical normal structure. I will treat anywhere from three to five treatments. We tend to spread the radiation dose out a little bit more if it tends to be what's called a central tumor that's within about two centimeters of the central proximal bronchial tree or an ultracentral tumor directly abutting the the bronchial tree or some of the the major vessels there. Or if it's right, it has a lot of contact with the chest wall. And the thought is, is that, that the 
smaller doses per day in adjacent normal tissues uh, can reduce, at least theoretically, reduce the risk of toxicity. We've seen that for central tumors. There were some studies that looked at three-fraction radiotherapy for central tumors, and it was too toxic. Patients had some catastrophic hemorrhage. And um, a recent uh, a clinical trial demonstrated five-fraction tumor or five-fraction regimens are safe to give for central and, and in some cases, ultra-central tumors. So anywhere from three to five treatments, you know, we, we want to give a certain amount of dose of radiation that is tumoricidal. We alter the dose per fraction and number of fractions in such a way that we uh, want to get a biologically effective dose of a certain a certain threshold. And there's a complex um, radiobiological equation that's used that, that takes into consideration the dose and fractionation. That's a little bit beyond the discussion here, but we need to get above a certain threshold to, to, to get a tumoricidal dose. And so we adjust our fractionation and dose in that regard. One thing I will say is that we're starting to learn a little bit more of is we're starting to learn a little bit more about the role that genomics play in radiosensitivity and radioresistance. And there's some interesting data suggesting that sometimes the molecular profile of, of the tumor may um, make it more or less likely to recur. So what we may be seeing in the future is dose escalation or de-escalation, depending upon the molecular profile of tumor. But we're just sort of, uh, we're a little bit behind medical oncology in that, but we're getting there. It's only a matter of time. We're running NGS on nearly everyone who walks through the door nowadays. <laughs> yeah, one of the other things I was I was wondering for SBRT, what's the maximum size of tumor that you say I can, you know, I feel like I can get local control in a patient that you know we, we've talked about how surgery is an ideal option for these early stage patients, but let's what's the maximum size of tumor that you'd say SBRT is still a reasonable option in this case if they were a non-operative candidate? Most clinical trials looking at SBRT, you know, large clinical trials have limited maximum size to five centimeters or less. So in, you know, very standardized, well-run clinical trials, we're looking at an AJCC, that would be a, a T2B, N0. But, you know, there are circumstances where we actually, you know, the, the patient doesn't have another option. And, you know, in some cases, the tumor is so large, you have to do concurrent chemoradiotherapy. But, you know, pre-Dervalimab era, we're looking at local control of around maybe 70%, maybe a little bit less with a tumor that large and with concurrent chemoradiotherapy. And so there is a tendency to try to do SBRT for larger tumors if we can, just by virtue of the fact that you can get improved local control. That said, our local control for smaller tumors is anywhere from 90 to 95%, but for larger tumors, it's less. But it's certainly, uh, if we can get away with it, it's the local control is better than uh, standard uh, fractionation. So I've treated tumors that are about eight centimeters in size. Um, not every single tumor you can do that, but there are circumstances where you can do something like that. I'm sure there are probably people out there who've done something larger. MD Anderson uh, typically treat very large tumors with a fractionation of 70 gray and 10 fractions. I'll typically do a 70 gray and 10 fractions or a 60 gray and 8 fractions or something along those lines if we're really trying to do curative intent. So, Dr. Osmondson, you know, kind of as a follow-up to that question, you know, our standard approach in, in many patients is if 
sometimes we have to use chemo radiation concurrently for the treatment of our patients, depending on their status of the disease. So specifically, we know like an N3 disease that's going to be necessary or inoperable N2 disease. And so, you know, you've kind of alluded to using, um, you know, our standard radiation approaches before, but I was curious, like on average, how do you calculate the duration that someone's going to be on treatment for and and what is what is the process that happens there? Yeah, it's a good question. We know that fractionated radiation therapy works best if it's given sequentially back to back to back. And there's data suggesting that if patients miss treatments, um, have large breaks in treatment, that the outcome is is can be worsened, local control is worsened. The best data for that is in head and neck, but there's also some data in lung and, and other other sites. So we like to do back to back to back. Most of the clinical trials that were done did not irradiate patients on weekends um, because tumors don't grow on weekends. No, I'm, I'm joking, right? That's, that's, that's always the joke in radiation oncology. Um, but, um, but the reality is, is most of the clinical trials uh, gave patients the weekends off. So for that reason, um, patients, we, we treat often typically five, five days a week. You know, sometimes we'll, we'll try to make up ground uh, and we'll do, um, you know, either a twice a day or we'll do six six days a week. There's some head and neck trials that looked at that, but most of the time it's five days a week. In terms of the the duration of treatment, you know, for many years, you know, we would always think more doses better. And I think when we're talking about ablative doses where we're not really worried about surrounding normal tissues, we always are. Uh, so let me say that. Higher dose is often better to a certain extent. But in lung cancer, there, there are a lot of retrospective studies that suggested that giving higher doses of radiation therapy, elevating it to 70, 74 gray, as opposed to 60 gray, was beneficial because more is always better, right? But the data suggested that retrospectively. But we know that in, uh, you know there's no substitute for a good randomized clinical trial. And so, geez, I think it's been about uh, maybe up to 10 years ago. Um, there was an RTOG 0617 was an important clinical trial that randomized patients um, 60 gray uh, versus 74 gray. That was the essential crux of the trial. And interestingly, the patients who got the 74 gray had worse outcomes. And this blew everybody away. So they said, now, how is this possible, et cetera, and so forth, especially considering that we're, you know, they, they at least thought that there were some strict guidelines in place in terms of normal tissue tolerance, et cetera, and so forth. And so, you know, what we've learned is there's really a sweet spot in terms of radiation dosing. And, you know, there's a lot of theories as to why the RTOG 0617 trial uh, resulted as it did. And uh, it had probably had a lot to do with toxicity. And, and specifically, some of the, the outcomes that were correlated with, uh, some of the, the factors that were correlated with poor outcomes were actually radiation dose to the heart. And it, it's interesting that, you know, when we thought about radiation to the of the heart, it was always sort of, well, that's that's a late side effect. You know, patients will get coronary artery disease 15 years down the line. But as we're learning, absolutely not. It can be a subacute or, or, or intermediate side effect. We know that there's a sweet spot and radiation therapy can be toxic. So we really want to only treat to the dose we need. And for lung cancer, 60 gray appears to be the standard of care um, at this point in time. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. And and I think, you know, right now in the early parts of this podcast, I think there are some trials that are really important to remember. And this is a good one for us to know is that 
we did a radiation trial looking at more radiation versus less radiation, and people did better with the less radiation, partially likely due to side effect tolerance in that we can have coronary disease that happens in it more subacutely, and it's not always chronically happening 15 years down the road when when people have coronary disease. So that's that's really good to know, and it's just good to know to to tell our patients that okay, if they're getting 60 grays total, and we're l- roughly giving maybe two grays a day, you can kind of figure out to yourself, okay, that's about 30 sessions of radiation, and that's really helpful to tell your patients are roughly six weeks, five days a week, and that helps us as we start concurrent chemotherapy, c- concurrent chemo chemotherapy for these patients, you know, just they, they, I've, I've had so many people ask me in clinic. And I remember in my early years of fellowship, I kind of sat there deer in the headlights look thinking, okay, how many doses am I going to give? Uh, talk to your radiation oncologist, then we'll get back to you. But it's good to know that it's somewhere around that six, seven week period. And, and we can give that expectations to our patients. Yeah. And of course it would be a bit different uh, depending upon the, the type of lung cancer for small cell lung cancer. We we do 45 gray BID. That would be three weeks of therapy. Or alternatively, we do 66 gray once daily. Um, and those doses, again, are, are really they're based on the CONVERT trial. So um, the radiation doses that we give now, unless it's on a clinical trial or experimental trial, are really um, very evidence-based. And a practical question in regards to chemo radiation, because this also comes up all the time. Does it, on the days that they're getting chemotherapy, does it matter what they get first? Because patients get really stressed out about this all the time. No, I'm not aware of any data as far as lung cancer is concerned, uh, determining what, you know, what, what they get first. There are some specific study drugs that, that uh, specific clinical trials that have, you know, very short half-life or you really want them to, the, the drug to be on board um, before we give the radiation. But for standard concurrent chemoradiotherapy, I'm not aware of any data that suggests it matters um, whether they get their radiation or, or chemotherapy first that particular day. And then as a, as a follow-up to that, in sequential chemoradiation, is there any guidance that you have about how long we should wait between the completion of radiation and chemotherapy um, in regards to minimizing toxicity, or does you know, does that not really matter? I think it really depends upon the agent that you're using and, you know, what, what the purpose is, what radiation dose and which organ. It's it, it's somewhat variable. Most of the time, if we're doing sequential chemoradiotherapy, chemotherapy and the radiation in lung cancer per se, we're usually doing chemotherapy up front uh, in sort of a new adjuvant manner. And that's either because the patient couldn't tolerate concurrent or the tumor is so large, we want to do a neoadjuvant approach where we can shrink it off. Because it's so, so um, site-specific and so uh, chemotherapy-specific, it's probably best just to check in with your radiation oncologist to make sure that there's not some untoward side effects. I think one of the, one of the things that we often run into and the challenges we run into is you know, the competing need to start chemotherapy as soon as possible, but also to try to palliate a patient. And so that's where you run into issues where, you know, you don't want to give high dose chemo and then at the same day, give stereotactic radiation to the brain. So that's where communication is really, really critical. And and for something like stereotactic radiation to the brain, what, what, yeah, and this happens often in my patients who have small cell lung cancer, let's say, and they have extensive stage disease and they have, you know, they're getting some form of radiation to the brain, uh, maybe for a met that popped up. Should I? How should we think about holding chemotherapy as 
these patients get radiation? You know, is there a certain, you know, should we, does it have, do you need to have a washout period for, for the patients before they get their radiation to their brain met? Yeah, it, that's, it's a bit of an open question. Um, I think that, um, you know, there are certain agents where the risk of radionecrosis is synergistic with a certain agent and some agents where the risk is very minimal. Typically, where we run into this is, you know, in patients who are getting cisatope, for example, and that's a Q3 week regimen. There's, in my mind, sufficient data to suggest that you can squeeze some SRS in between cycles. But uh, I wouldn't be excited about, you know, doing the SRS concurrently. We also have to be a little bit cautious about some of the biologic agents or the TKIs um, because they have such good CNS penetration. And at least in our practice, and we, we actually have a, an interesting um, abstract, one of, my, one, of the, one of our stellar residents put together an abstract showing that um, you know, patients who get uh, concurrent TKI, particularly osimertinib because of the CNS penetration, they have a, higher, a bit higher risk of radiation necrosis. So we're a little bit cautious to make sure patients are off that maybe about five five days to seven days ahead of time at least and hold it for five to seven days if we can. I think an interesting question would be is, you know, given the, the, the synergy that we see with this drug, could we dose reduce but our SRS? But that's, that's sort of an, a, a research question. But I, I think the important thing here is just, you know, make sure you're open communication with the radiation oncologist. Uh, nothing gives me more uh, heartburn than um, to learn that we started palliative radiation on somebody's brain and to learn that they started uh, high dose uh, methotrexate <laughs> in the hospital or something. Um, and, and, you know, you, you hear that because, uh, because teams just aren't communicating. So, and, and it's not always on, on, on the burden of the, the medical oncologist. I, th I think that the radiation oncologist, the door swings both ways. You really have to, to cooperate to take good care of patients. A lot of patients nowadays are asking us about proton therapy and, and proton radiation therapy. Uh, you know, before we started this interview, the three of us were, were talking about what the Bragg peak is, and that's just when you deliver traditional radiation, which are, which are like X-ray photon beams, that um, you end up getting a peak and then slightly a, a decreased slower drop-off. But with protons, you can, you can deliver the peak and then have a really, really rapid drop-off. So theoretically, you should have less toxicity to the tissues as the beams are exiting. Um, uh, Dr. Osmondson, can you tell us a little bit more about proton beams and, and how that relates to thoracic oncology in particular? Yeah, sure. I, I'll, I'll sort of give it a go. Um, I'll preface this by saying that I'm not an expert in proton radiotherapy. Um, but in terms of basic principles, you sort of hit, hit the nail on the head. With photon-based radiotherapy, the x-rays uh, pass through the tissue, and as they pass through the tissue... Uh, the beam is attenuated and you have exit dose. And um, depending on the energy of the, the photons used uh, initially, the maximum dose gets deposited at a certain depth and then falls off. But with uh, proton beams, the, uh, you, you you're, you're absolutely right. You have this Bragg peak effect where the, you can sort of specify how deep the, the proton delivers the, the, the dose of radiation and you get uh, essentially no exit dose. Theoretically, protons have tremendous potential to advance the field of radiation therapy. I think practically, we're not quite in a, in a position to uh, recommend proton therapy for all radiotherapy treatments for a variety of reasons. One of them is that we're not able 
and this is changing, I'll preface this, we're, we're typically not able, many centers are not able to shape the proton beam as efficiently as we're able to shape the photon beam. And so you're often limited in the, uh, the beam angles that you can use, um, and you're limited to one or two fields. That said, sometimes proton plants can be uh, far superior to uh, even the best uh, IMRT plants, but not always. The other thing that's a challenge, too, is that when you're dealing with uh, moving targets like the lung, you have to do some fancy, use some fancy planning techniques and some sort of interpolation to sort of take into consideration how the proton beam will be deposited in a moving target. I'm not a huge fan of protons for, for, for many lung cancers, unless you can't meet your, your standard threshold doses for this very reason, because there's still some uncertainty in, in sort of how the, the protons sort of behave in the lung. There is um, some very exciting work being done and in practice now using intensity modulated proton therapy um, that should you know help with some of this, but there are trade-offs with protons and, and there's not always a, a direct benefit. And so any, anytime someone's considering proton uh, radiotherapy, I, I, I generally recommend that they consult with um, a radiation oncologist. And it's important that that radiation oncologist is able to, if, if the patient's going to consider proton therapy, that they're able to de develop a comparative treatment plan. Because just because theoretically in our minds and in paper, uh, proton therapy would be more beneficial or would think to be more beneficial, sometimes the treatment plans that we develop with IMRT are far superior. And then finally, I'll sort of say that right now, uh, proton therapy is quite costly. And we do live in a um, healthcare environment with finite resources. And so the question is often, is, um, is a marginal benefit in uh, dose to uh, an organ that has no clinical benefit, something that's a theoretical benefit to, uh, to an organ uh, worth three times, three times the cost uh, if there's going to be no clinical difference in toxicity. So these are things as a society we really have to grasp. Uh, where do we want to spend our money? Where are we going to get the most bang for a buck? And certainly for pediatric patients, uh, re-irradiation, um, tumors near the spinal cord, other other situations, uh, certainly th there's many, many advantages and the trade-off is there. But for often for run-of-the-mill uh, types of treatments, um, the data really just doesn't support the use of proton therapy over photon therapy at this time. But that may change. Um, and um, that's one of the exciting things about our field. Uh, things change and and um, uh, things improve. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I, I think that it's it, patients always want to know that they're being considered for the, the latest, greatest thing. And, um, and, and, you know, it can be hard to, to encounter that enthusiasm and, and just have to temper it and say, look, you know, maybe someday we're going to be there. Uh, but right now, you know, we have great evidence supporting our traditional forms of radiation uh, for the problem that you have that you're coming to me with. Um, and uh, I think that that kind of explanation is, is just so helpful. So thank you. Yeah. And, and one last thing I'll sort of mention is that um, 
uh, the delivery of any radiotherapy technique is really dependent upon the facility that delivers it and the, um, the radiation oncologist and the physics team that supports that radiation oncologist. And so um, good IMRT plans are far superior to bad proton plans. And unfortunately, there, there tends to be an incentive uh, at some proton facilities to try to um, uh, use protons for everything under the sun. And so, um, you know, anybody considering proton therapy, I would go to a center that is uh, well-known for protons and that where they're also well-known for using uh, standard radiotherapy techniques. So they can do a very comparative plan and, and actually clinically pick the best plan for you as a patient. Um, yeah. That's such a good point. I, I, I love that because how would you know which is better unless you're kind of an expert in both fields? That, that, that's, that makes a lot of sense to me. It, and it also goes to the fact that, you know, we don't necessarily have all of the data there for proton therapy. It's a newer therapy, but, you know, we don't have as much retrospective prospective data and, and and trial data using it as opposed to what we traditionally do. And I think understanding those limitations for us is really important as we talk to our patients, as the patients ask us these questions and to definitely always, you know, talk to a center who has a lot of experience because that does make a difference in outcomes. And we really need to keep that in the back of our head. Absolutely. Yeah. And th that's exactly why we're having these conversations. And, and we just want to thank you so much for uh, joining us and giving us all the pearls you have over these, you know, last last few sessions with us talking about the basics of radiation oncology and then specifically talking about some details of thoracic uh, radiation and and it's just so important for us. You know, we've talked to pulmonary, we've talked to radiation oncology. We have a, a surgeon coming up for you guys, and you know, can't thank you enough again because it's it's really helpful to have these multidisciplinary talks. My pleasure. Well, thank you for asking me to be on. Um, I, uh, I think this is uh, sounds like a great podcast. So, uh, kudos to you. Hey, thanks. Thank you very much. Well, listeners, that wraps up another great episode of the Fellow on Call. So, until next time, we'll see you later. See you later. Bye.